Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is our 443rd show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Christy Navin-Warren, Professor and VO and Elizabeth Call Figge Chair of Catholic Studies in the Departments of Religious Studies and Gender and Women's and Sexuality Studies at the University of Iowa. I, I don't know if I made it through, Ed. I think I took a breath in there. <laughs> I, I, I sensed that. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Broders and Ed... Rick Broders. <laughs> Rick Sweet, yes. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapp Zappital, and our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. And we're going to hope that our host can has gotten it all out of his system here, because I haven't made mistakes in multiple, multiple shows, and I managed to make a bunch of them in like 30 seconds. So we'll see how we go. <laughs> At any rate, welcome to the show, Christy. We're more professional than I just made a sound. <laughs> well, it's great to be here. And uh, I'm chuckling because uh, it makes me feel better, actually, because I always get a little nervous before these interviews and conversations. So we'll just, yeah. We'll get our, our wiggles out now. There you go. Perfect. Uh, so our first segment is called Farouk Dinarin, and we really just want to give our listeners a little bit of background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on how the meatpacking industry has developed in America? Absolutely. So that's a great opening question. Thanks so much. So, yeah, I'm sure many of your read, uh, your listeners today have um, have read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, right? And maybe they've read Fast Food Nation by Schlosser. Uh, maybe they've read, um, you know, Eric Schlosser's The Chain Never Stops. And so I've long been interested in how the meat packing industry has developed, especially since I moved to Iowa and I've been working and interviewing meatpacking plant workers. So when we trace the origins, really, we have to start with, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century, Chicago's back of the yards, and Cincinnati, you know, also called Porkopolis. Um, meatpacking, in, you know, in the United States is really like a late 19th century inner city. Um, the slaughter was open. Um, you could have tours. Um, there was a lot of and there weren't a lot of there weren't any health codes right and we learned from Upton Sinclair's famous piece The Jungle right that rat droppings were mixed in with sausage you know you know blood and meal and made into the sausages so hygiene wasn't a thing and you know injury rates you know there were a lot of injuries and so your your audience is probably somewhat familiar with with a little bit of the history where I became really interested in it um, from, you know, living in a state where there are a lot of rural um, meatpacking plants is that I noticed after conducting a lot of interviews that most of the Latinos and migrants that I'd worked with worked for the meatpacking plants. And so it wasn't something that I had planned on researching, but it's something that my ethnography led me to. And so as I was doing the research and doing the historical research on the packing plants, um, 
packing plants came to rural America from inner city hubs like Chicago and Cincinnati and out east in, you know, the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And, and, and this was an intentional move because mostly packing plants were unionized when they were in cities. But when they were moved into rural America, places in Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, and out east in, like, North Carolina, they were in kind of hard-to-find places, back roads. Um, they tended to be deunionized. They tend to be in now what we call red states. There wasn't a lot of regulation still. And so um, in my state of Iowa, you know, we have many meatpacking plants. And this was part of the history as well. Uh, historians like to look at continuity and change. And one of the things that, that's been continuous with the history of meatpacking plants is that there have always been monopolies, right? And so we have JBS, um, we have Chinese companies, we have U.S.-based companies. Um, Smithfield is Chinese-owned, JBS is Brazilian-owned, and then we have Tyson, which is U.S.-owned. And those tend to be the big three. Um, and so we've had a lot of consolidations and mergers. So there's always really been a big three or big four in meatpacking. And um, so when you find, when you locate meatpacking plants today in rural America, these tend to be places where you have high concentrations of refugees, uh, refugees and migrant populations. And in many ways, uh, these packing plants are the lifeblood economically of these small towns in these rural areas. But at the same time, you know, they're polluting the waterways, the air, the bodies of the workers. That's something else that's very continuous when we go back to the turn of the century. And so today's meatpacking plants, uh, meatpacking America is rural-based. It's in right-to-work states. You have a refugee work population, um, primarily Latinx, Latinos, Burmese, Vietnamese, and Africans, Sudanese, and Congolese. Whereas when we looked at when there was the big shift to rural America in the 50s through the 80s, we mostly had black and white working class workers. You'll, you'll find white workers today, but, but not nearly as many as you did in the earlier phases of the movement out into rural America. So that's like Christie's Cliff Note version of, <laughs> of the, the shift from urban to rural meatpacking. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? And, and that's just about perfect for this first segment. Um, you've set the table. Now we're, uh, we're going to dig in. So uh, please come back for the second segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALI website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio station where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Christy Navin-Warren, 
Professor in VO and Elizabeth Colfigge Chair of Catholic Studies in the Departments of Religious Studies and Gender and Women's and Sexuality Studies at the University of Iowa. And we're talking about Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. And Rick, why don't you start us off? Well, since my signal dropped out for about three minutes, I have no idea what Christine said in the beginning, so I will do a blind shot across the bow. Um, we, we, had a, we had a guest on uh, ROI a year or so ago, Art Collins from Storm Lake, uh, yes, and, uh, yeah. and, he, and he talked a great deal about the, the, uh, the importance of meatpacking in his community and actually the, the county. Uh, and he, he talked a little bit about the unity, but also the division. And since your book has the word divide, how does meat, the meatpacking industry divide the heartland? Yeah, that's a great question, Rick. Um, and I didn't cover this earlier, so we're, we're on to fresh material, so no worries. Perfect, perfect. Well, first of all, yeah, first of all, I am like a huge fan of Art Collins' work, Um in many ways, I have found his work really a model of, of journalism and scholarship because he really tries to get at the nuances, um, the yes. tensions, you know, in rural America and in places like Iowa. And so I, I really took his book and like Sarah Smarsh's work, Heartland, really as a starting point, you know, because I think because they're Midwesterners, um, um, you know, Smarsh, Kansan, and um, Art. Uh, colon and Iowan, I mean, they, they get it. And so I think where we see division is where, and he talks about this in his articles as well as in his book, Storm Lake, I've seen this in Columbus Junction, Washington, West Liberty, Tama, all the places where I've done field work. Um, and in the meatpacking plant communities in particular, Columbus Junction was a primary site for me, but then Tama, Iowa. I think where you see the divisions are, you know, a lot of the white ethnics, um, you know, who've been there a while, so German, Irish, Catholics, Protestants, right? Um, while there are a lot of similarities in experience, right, working hard, overcoming poverty, you know, saving up for your kids' education, um, you know, buying shoes for your kids to wear to school, I think that, you know, where the divisions remain are many whites are, you know, nervous about these relative newcomers. They, they're appreciative in some ways that their towns have been saved. I mean, many of these folks I've talked to, white, white folks, white ethnics, are, are recognize intellectually, right, that they see it with their own eyes, that their downtowns have now been revitalized. There are new restaurants, right? These, you know, sure. newcomers, yeah. that's, right, they've, they've brought a lot of great things to their communities, but there's, there, there's that underlying resentment as well. So I think it's very much a mixed bag here, and, that, and I call it a sticky wicket of whiteness in the book, where... <laughs> You know, you've got a combination like of, you know, white privilege and racism on, on one hand, but you also have an acknowledgement of the gifts and the skills, you know, that, that are brought into these communities. And that's why I like arts work so much. And I try to really unpack that in, in the communities where I've done my field work and to show that. And ultimately, I'm hopeful that these communities are going to weather this storm. And I think, you know, one of the things I, I talked about in a podcast I did earlier today, actually, was that one of the things that I would love to see that I think would help overcome these divisions is more white folks reaching out and saying, hey, you know, I really might want to pick up Spanish. I might want to pick up, you know, some, you know, Hakka Chin or maybe another language to help me communicate. Um, 
I, we, I, you know, I and my research have seen a, a real reticence to sort of pick up another language beyond English. And I think that, you know, when we're not able to communicate with our new neighbors, you know, that, that can lead to problems. And we see our new neighbors in these towns learning English, right? And, and they're making an, an effort. Um, and so I think that I'm hopeful, but I think that these divisions will continue if whites don't make more of an effort to truly welcome these newcomers who have come for the same reasons, you know, white folks' ancestors came for, right? To, you know, to economically prosper, to send their kids to good schools, to have grass where their kids can run around in, you know, and fleeing poverty and economic stability in their home countries. And so what I find is that what unites folks can, can be overcome by the divisions. But I think the bottom line is there's a lot that unites folks that I think we just really need to see a little bit. We need to look harder to see that. All right. Ed, do you have a question? Yeah. Um, based on what I think I know about meatpacking in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, most of those immigrants uh, came from Europe. Yeah. And yeah. Um, what they saw, what they had seen in Europe but not been able to participate in, yeah. um, you know, we saw the beginning of the, uh, the organized labor uh, yeah. in Europe. And yes. I've always thought that that was part of the motivation yeah. um, that the union that meatpacking got unionized in this country. And yeah. now I, when I think about the immigrants that come here, the little I know about this, it seems that their standard is, well, I'm better off than I was in Guatemala or wherever I came from. Um, yeah, yeah. Are, are the expectations um, kind of different that way? I'm really glad you asked this question, Ed, because you're right. There, there was a failed unionization attempt by outside organizers coming into the Columbus Junction plant several years ago. This is before, um, I think it was in the 90s. This is before I was here and started my research. But I think, I think that's a really interesting historical and geographic, geographically contextualized question, because you're right. I mean, Eastern Europeans coming from places where unionization was more effective and more part of the culture, right? And having effective unionization campaigns in Cincinnati and Chicago, I know I keep coming up with these these places, but these are like the two, the big two with you know beef and um, and pork in the late nineteenth, really up to the mid twentieth century. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that um, that's a, that's an interesting question too, because when we when we look at when we look at the rural Midwest, we're no longer seeing Eastern Western European migrants coming here, right, for economic prosperity. And you're right. Guatemalans, El Salvadorans, Mexicanos, as well as refugees from Sudan, the DNC, Burma, slash Myanmar, you're right. There weren't, um, there haven't been historically effective unionization campaigns or unions in those, in those nations, in those places. And I hadn't really thought about that to, you know, I'm thinking about that differently now since you, since you asked the question, but perhaps there isn't that predisposition, I think what you're asking, to accept or to think about unions. But I will let you know, since the book has come out, um, I'm, I've been involved with going to some city council meetings here locally in Iowa City and um, have some friends who work with Iowa CCI, which is really trying to help uh, Latinos and others unionize in the Tyson plan in Columbus Junction. And so it's been Catholic parishes in West Liberty, Iowa, St. Joseph, and then the St. Joseph the Worker in Columbus Junction those two parishes have been places 
where folks have been trying to get a grassroots unionization going again. So it'll be really interesting to see. And I think post-COVID, with all that we've seen with these companies, not being good stewards to their workers, despite the lexicon of corporate America that Tyson uses, right, that they're good stewards and they take care of their families, we've seen that they don't take care of their workers, right? They didn't put PDPs into place. They didn't have widespread vaccine campaigns until outsiders put pressure and until workers didn't show up, right? So I think it'll be really interesting, and I'm hopeful that we will see some effective unionization happen. But I think you're right that it wasn't baked into the culture the way that we saw with, like, Jurgis, who was the fictional character in The Jungle, in Sinclair's The Jungle? That's a great question. Christy, I'm going to kind of piggyback on that. Um, in the early days of ROI, we did a series of broadcasts on the Postville raid uh, that oh, took place yeah. in the uh, in the late 2000s. Um, and uh, two, sort of a two-part question here, and you can deal with them in any way you like. The, the first part of the question was just, it, it was very much the Catholic Church um, in yeah. that small town that intervened and dealt with the sort of fallout of what the um, immigration uh, and naturalization uh, people did when they came in and, and hit that raid and, and took out yeah. hundreds of people uh, and and left sort of women and children and and you know yeah. broke up families and all of that that had nowhere to go. Um, yeah. It was uh, a pastor Odekirk was the guy's name and he's now dead uh, who really jumped in with both feet he was sort of three quarters retired and he jumped in and really did all of the humanitarian work um, that was involved in sort of keeping that that whole situation uh, bearable with no support whatsoever from uh, Iowa um, uh, state legislature or Iowa senators or uh, you know other local sort of political leaders who wanted nothing to do with that wanted you know that was a hot potato issue. Um, so I think when you talk about faith, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how faith has been uh, impacting helping. Um, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And then the, mm-hmm. the the last show that we did several years later was to have the mayor uh, of Postville on um, wow. as kind of a follow-up. And it was one of the most chilling uh, broadcasts that we have done because this mayor uh, basically spun this that, that it had never really happened. That, that the raid had never happened and certainly that the owner of the meatpacking company there had never done anything wrong and that, um, you know, that, that this was just all bad publicity and everything is wonderful in the town now and the Hispanic workers had been replaced by African workers. I think they were Sudanese, maybe one of the, maybe Rick can remind yes, me a yeah, little. They were, they, were, they were from Africa, Sudanese, yeah. you're right. Um, and so, you know, it, it was it was really terrifying because these folks – 
in the name of the economic prosperity of the town, had functionally done everything they could to wipe this event from the collective consciousness. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, is that also a tale that the power that these owners exert in these small towns where they are the economy, functionally speaking, um, does that power get abused? So you can tackle those in any way you like. Yeah, that, I'm so glad you brought up um, Postville, Jay, because Postville, what, 2008, you know, again, I moved here and I started working here at University of Iowa in 2012. And so as a good anthropologist, to you know, I just started literally driving around and reading everything I could about Iowa because I knew I wanted to write something about Iowa and something about Catholicism, in part because I'm funded by lay Catholics, you know, and I felt really called to do a book on, on Catholics, right? And so you're right, and, and Father Oderkirk, you're absolutely right, and St. Bridget's Parish, I mean, they were the outreach. They were doing liberation theology, preferential option for the poor, in, in very much like the Catholic Church is, you know, the Catholic Church had a long commitment to social justice and, and you know, liberation theology, which hasn't always been popular in, in the, you know, the hierarchy. But, but, but Postville was mentioned by every single priest that I got to know here in eastern Iowa who works, clo- who works closely uh, with immigrant rights. And I actually was able to get uh, my first tour at Tyson and Columbus Junction because the chaplain there is friends with a activist priest I know, Father Joseph Sia, who said, you've been talking to all these people for your book project, and they're all saying that they work in the packing plant. And he and I were talking. He's like, now it's time for you to go to the packing plant. And that's how I had my first foray into the packing plant. And so I'm really glad you brought in religion, because there have been a lot of really great books and great studies uh, recently even on the meatpacking plant industry. And I think they're all really, really great. But what I wanted to add to that was to also explore faith, faith from the CEO's and CFO's perspective of the plants, which which I find very troubling. It's all about faith, family stewardship. It's thinly veiled evangelical Protestantism and prosperity theology. But what we see from the workers, they're not they're not necessarily taking the bait. What we see from the workers is that they're being fed spiritually by their parishes, um, working with priests and pastors who who see the suffering, who see um, what they're going through. They understand they're living precarious lives. And so I really try to get at how faith is lived inside these packing plants, how, how it's lived outside. And, you know, most of the priests I, I interviewed and worked closely with over six years, they are part of like an ecumenical alliance with Protestant ministers. And so ever since Postville, um, many religious leaders have felt really called to do something about these ice raids, right? And so whenever there's a whiff of an ice raid, these priests and pastors, you know, call each other, they have plans in action, and they basically make sure that they tell folks don't leave their houses, you know, we've heard this might be happening. And so this is very much, you know, activism, what I would say, on the part of a lot of religious leaders. Um, And I've been heartened by that. You know, there's a lot of bad press about, you know, the Midwest, there's been a lot of bad press about the Catholic Church, which which there should be with the sex abuse scandal that we've seen. But one of the things that I find that's hopeful about organized religion is when we see priests and pastors mobilize for social justice reasons and for protecting the poor and the most vulnerable. And I've also seen here in Iowa City, while it's not a rural place, you know, you have like a very vibrant Catholic worker movement. And the Catholic worker houses across the state have really become 
frontline refugee sites for refugees to have, you know, to basically seek refuge. And so when we talk about religion, um, I think that we see a lot of progressive religious movement. We hear a lot about more right-leaning religion and evangelical Protestantism, and we see that too. But what we're also, I'm trying to to tell both and a story here, but what we also see are social justice-motivated Catholics and Protestants alike appreciating their new neighbors and trying to do something about the abuses that they see coming from the government and coming from, you had mentioned, the state legislatures and governor at the time of Postville, and now aren't doing anything to protect workers and their rights. Okay, Rick, probably your last question. Well, I was going to make some color commentary on Postville. Remember, the the mayor had a twenty eight million dollar reason to. I do to, remember to, exactly. To ignore right. that. Yep. Uh, it, just out of curiosity, uh, <laughs> that, that we we don't want, we don't want to get into that. We we haven't been sued by Donald Trump yet, so we don't want to be sued right, by Trump. Right. So. Uh, Christy, uh, the meat packers that you studied, uh, how close do they come to living the dream? Uh, you know, a livable wage. They're able to save clothes, house, uh, feed their families. How how close were they coming to the middle-class standard? Yeah, I mean, I think many of them are, but what they end up doing is pooling resources. And a lot of family members, there will be multiple family members working for the packing plan, right? And what you find with these refugees, right, is, um, and I call in the book, I call all the migrants, whether they're economic economic migrants, asylees, there's a lot of parsing by U.S. immigration with de facto and de jure. What I'm saying is that all of the individuals I interviewed are de facto, you know, refugees. They're all coming. The one thing that connects them is for economic prosperity and liberation. And so, yes, I mean, many live in trailers and many are saving up to buy homes. Um, all of all of the refugees I spoke with are doing much better economically than they were in their home countries. They send regular remittances home uh, to family members there. I mean, many of them are supporting families over there in addition to families here. And what I try to get across in the book is these are individuals who work so hard. And, you know, it's a completely brown and black workforce. You're talking African, not so much African-American in the plants where I did research, but mostly African, Congolese, Sudanese and mostly Latinos um, from the Northern Triangle, right? And so of Central America. And so these are folks who are just working long hours. They want overtime. And a constant, a constant refrain I kept hearing. So I interviewed around 130 individuals for the book, not all of whom are meatpacking plant workers, but close to 100 meatpacking plant workers who are also parishioners in the various churches where I went. And none of them want the reader to feel sorry for them. They said, we work hard. We earn a good wage for our families. Interestingly enough, though, none of them want their children working at the packing plants. They're working really hard so that their kids don't have to. You know, they want their kids to go to college. They want their kids to maybe run the company one, one day. So if, they would, if their kids would be affiliated with the companies at all, it wouldn't be as a line worker. You know, so they very much want to be the last um, generation to be working on the line. You know, they want they want their their kids and their grandkids to go to University of Iowa or UNI or Iowa State and, and to be veterinarians or doctors or lawyers or, or teachers, you know. And so most certainly I would never want to romanticize working at the plant and, and most certainly my interlocutors wouldn't want what they do romanticize. But 
I tell you, after after spending quite a bit of time in the packing plants, I just, I don't know anyone who could do this work. And I mean, I spent a, a week, close to 80 hours at the Iowa Premium Beef Plant in Tama. I wasn't allowed to actually make cuts because of liability stuff, but I was able to be on the line. I went through the work of training. I got to see the whole intake bar into the end. I got to see the entire process. And I was exhausted just observing and talking to folks, let alone, like, I didn't do the work. And so I came away, and I hope the reader comes away with a deep appreciation for what I call, this is highly skilled labor. You know, and I think we're doing these workers a real disservice, and it's really awful of us to say that this is unskilled labor, because this is, like, highly skilled labor, you know. And I think with unions, I mean, I think unions could bring more protections. I think unions could do a lot for these folks. Um, So I'll be really curious as I as I chart post book um, coming out, like what's the next step for these for these particular plants? All right. Well, we have had a wonderful discussion, but unfortunately, all good things have to end. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, one hundred six point one FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 443rd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song of our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zabital. My name is Jay Swords, and we'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Christy Navin-Warren, professor in VO and Elizabeth Call Figgy Chair of Catholic Studies in the Departments of Religious Studies and Gender and Women's and Sexuality Studies at the University of Iowa, who's talked to us about her book, Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.